I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and I'm here today with Professor John Tomney, who now works at University College London. When I knew him many, many years ago, he worked at Newcastle University. And I got to know him uh, up in the northeast of England when I was working for a paper up there. And I have to say that uh, my interest in devolution was very much inspired by John. And he was at the forefront of discussing ideas about reconfiguring the UK. Uh, he was very much involved in talking about devolution in England actually uh, significantly before there was devolution in Wales and he later was the chair of the ill-fated 2004 referendum campaign that wanted to establish an assembly in the northeast of England. So John, welcome to Cardiff. Um, Thank you. I thought I'd start off by asking you how did you get involved and interested in concepts relating to devolution? Oh, that's a big question, and it goes back into the mists of time now, I suppose. So I'll have to think about that. But I mean, I suppose my political formation occurred during the Thatcher era in uh, Britain. That's where I came to sort of maturity, if you like, in terms of how I understood the world. And uh, rather, as happened in Scotland and Wales, I think uh, Thatcherism had a, a very distinctive, regressive impact. Uh, in a place like the northeast of England, uh, a key sort of formative uh, event during that time for me would have been the miners' strike, which, you know, seemed to me an incredibly punitive and brutal conflict. And in the aftermath of that, it was clear that there were going to be many communities in the northeast of England that that would be left behind um, as the economy changed, as old industries died and new ones replaced them. The new ones that were emerging. Uh, were not really emerging in a strong way in, in the north of England. So th- th- there was a kind of economics to it all, and I, I became interested in these ideas which uh, stressed that in order to deal with the kinds of economic problems that existed in places like the northeast, uh, you had to have strong institutions, strong locally controlled institutions. It wasn't the only thing you needed to, to, to uh, promote development, but it was a, a necessary, if not sufficient, ingredient. So there was that. Alongside that, there was I was increasingly aware of the fact that devolution looked like a prospect in Scotland, which was which is the northeast nearest neighbour, Edinburgh is its, its northeast closest capital city, not London. Um, aware also of what was happening uh, in Wales and, and and so on, and 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 to some extent also in London, which was going to get its new mayor and assembly. And it seemed to me that um, you know the north, a place like the northeast, had a claim for something. You know, it's not a nation. It's not you know. Um, Despite what some people in the northeast would say, it's not a nation, but it's a it's a place which um, had a claim for institutions to enable it to help itself. And I think the third element, which in a sense has become more apparent to me as time has gone on, actually, is um, the third element was that um, a strong sense of attachment to the place, a sense that it's a different place, it has its own identity, its own community and culture, and that deserves some expression as well. So it's not just about narrow economics, it's about a sense of belonging and attachment and all of these things when you add them up 
make a case for saying this place deserves representation, deserves some autonomy, deserves the right to be able to help itself, particularly in a context like England, which is highly centralised. Now, of course, when the Labour government under Tony Blair was elected in 1997, it did so with a commitment to having uh, referendums in Scotland and Wales. Mm. Um, and that was a policy, actually, wasn't it, that Tony Blair had inherited from John Smith, the previous leader, because I don't think Tony Blair himself was a, a wild, enthusiastic person. I think that evolution. might actually be an understatement, yeah. <laughs> but I think uh, once it was successfully introduced in Scotland and Wales, uh, in Wales very narrowly, as you're aware, mm. in that 97 uh, referendum, there was then... Uh, a look at what could possibly be done in England. Mm. You've spoken about the quite cohesive nature of uh, the northeast of England as a, mm. as a region. Um, and I guess that when the uh, Labour government was thinking about where should we go with this, mm. it was the most obvious region to do that because mm. in other parts of uh, uh, England, it's very difficult sometimes to see where boundaries should be and where they shouldn't be, isn't it? Because you've got the southwest of England, what does that consist of? Uh, you've got the southeast, what does, what does that consist of? You know what London is. But the Midlands, again, is some uh, entity mm. which, um, which could be quite fluid. In the cases of Scotland and Wales, uh, the boundaries were given was there any concern about North East and what the North East of England actually consisted of? Well, you know, at that time, you, you're correct, of course, to say that drawing lines, regional boundaries in England, is always, it's always been a fraught process. Although there historically have been many attempts to do this, um, going right back, you know, I mean, Gladstone talked about, the need, you know, suggested the need to divide England up into uh, portions, he called them. Um, because it was too big a country to govern centrally. Churchill flirted with the idea of English devolution during the Home Rule all-round debate and uh, made a speech along those lines in 1912. Of course, Churchill changed his mind on just about everything all the time. But this is not not something that just appeared uh, solely with the emergence of of the Labour government in 1997. Um, what had happened before 1997 was that this, the, the, the question of English devolution had really been given uh, a place in the hands of John Prescott. Uh, Prescott had had an independent commission chaired by Bruce Milan, who was the former Secretary of State for Scotland and also the former EU Regional Commissioner. And they argued that England should be divided into these regions. Um, and to some extent, the lines drawn on the map were arbitrary. Although probably the northeast looked more cohesive than others, you could make a case that Yorkshire looks very cohesive. And we might come back and talk about that later on. Um, but one of the problems with the way in which the lines were drawn on the map was that there wasn't really a debate about that. Um, it, 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 and therefore, from the beginning, there was always the danger that this could be presented as a central imposition on an unwilling place. Uh, and I think that played in the debate about uh, the regional assembly and it allowed the opponents to, to stress you know that the differences that existed within the region you know to some extent you know you got that argument playing out in the Welsh assembly you know people saying that North Wales and South Wales don't have the same interests and you know Welsh Wales and English Wales and all that sort of thing um, I won't say any more about that because I'm not an expert on it but uh, 
But yeah, so I think it was a bit of an issue. How you, you know the question of how you draw boundaries, of course, is in, in, in you know how you draw borders is an inherently political issue, and it should have been subject to probably more debate than than it was at the time. So we get to two thousand and four. Uh, by which time the decision has been made that indeed the northeast of England will be the mm. first one mm. proposed mm-hmm. uh, to have a regional assembly, uh, and you got involved mm-hmm. as the chair of uh, of the campaign. Mm-hmm. Now, at that time, what was your sense of the level of support for devolution within the northeast? Well, you know, you were starting from not just a low level of support, but a low level of knowledge about what was being proposed and I think it's you know if, if you offered the people the principle of more power for the North East to help itself um, you could get opinion polls to show that there was support for that but um, when you started talking about what this would look like what the costs would be etc uh, then it was very difficult to maintain a coalition of support uh, in, in favour of the idea you know so you got some of the arguments that were deployed were, you know, so the No campaign would deploy arguments such as, well, we don't want an expensive uh, parliamentary building like they've got in Cardiff. What a waste of money. It'll, it's just, it'll just be an extra cost. So those arguments, so in that kind of context, you're really, you were really, in a, you were really trying to make an argument where the facts, the basic facts, were difficult to explain. Um, the case seemed very abstract, measured against the practical concerns that people have um, at that time. Uh, and I think that made attacking the idea very easy. Um, and the No campaign, which was uh, organised, as it turns out, by people like Dominic Cummings, who were then, you know, uh, organised the uh, Leave campaign in, in relation to Brexit, presented this sort of relentlessly pessimistic view about uh, costs, more politicians. They'd all been they'd all been deployed in Scotland and Wales. These arguments, but because the foundations of the case were weaker, I think in the northeast they they had a better chance of getting a hearing. Really, and all they had to do was to think of you know they could come up with a hundred reasons to um, you know we, we had to have many reasons to vote yes, whereas they only had to have a handful of reasons to vote no. If you see what I mean, so. It was a difficult argument to make. And one of the other problems was that the national media was basically uninterested. So even as the as we were getting closer to the referendum, many people simply hadn't heard enough. And I don't understand was a good reason to vote no. I don't understand. Um, so uh, it was that those were, I think, the um, uh, the major factors which ended up, you know, which which resulted in the no vote. I think another element, perhaps as well, is the fact that uh, looking at the political situations in Scotland and Wales, mm. you've always had a, a measure of nationalism yeah. in those countries. So yeah. you're going to get that uh, core support from a certain proportion of people yes. who will just say, right, we are uh, nationalistically Scottish or nationalistically mm. Wales, and therefore we will vote for an institution of this kind. Yeah. Whereas in the northeast of England, it's really not quite the same. No, it's not the same at all. You know, and it's more akin to some of the kind of regional conditions you might find in other European states, where you know there's no, you know, as you say, you have national claims here. We're a nation, and we need national institutions. You can't make that case. 
in the context of the English regions. You know, and you see, it's the difference in a way between the historical regions of Spain and the other regions which come along later on demanding autonomy because they see these historical regions like Catalonia or the Basque Country pulling away and becoming more powerful and so on. So I suppose what our argument would have been at the time was that we should acknowledge that advantages were going to go to Scotland and Wales and we would be left behind and we're left out of, of the when it, when it came to the distribution of power, resources, investment and so on. Um, and I think history's more, history has more or less proven that to be the case. You know, I mean, that the way in which austerity has rolled out, the way in which resources have been distributed, you see places like the northeast of England, the north of England more generally, has been pretty much the last in the queue. So that, that issue hasn't gone away, actually. I mean, what I have seen is, uh, amongst some studies that have been made, even down here in Wales, mm. where people talk about some kind of future federal system mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. UK, one of the big elephants in the room, or the big elephant in the room, is what happens in England, of course. Mm. And very often people will make the point that if you make comparisons between the various regions uh, within England, then the northeast comes out extremely badly mm. in terms of the distribution of resources and the allocation of funds. And yet, I'm not sure to what extent that sort of argument is still current in the northeast. I mean, are people aware of that and do they discuss it? Uh, yeah, I, th I think there's a... that You know, not just in the northeast of England, but in other places... For both positive and negative reasons, there's a really strong anti-London sentiment. You pick this up a lot. Um, it doesn't really get politicised through the regional frame, if you like. But I would, I would say that, you know, based on my unscientific anecdotal research among taxi drivers and shopkeepers and and what have you, among friends and family. But also I think it's borne out by more scientific studies. I would say that part of the Brexit backlash was came from a sense of neglect, a sense that, you know, people tell us the economy's growing, but so why am I getting poor? Um, all the power and all the money's in London. You know, one interpretation uh, that you could make of the Brexit vote in a place like the North East, which went from being a Labour heartland to a Brexit heartland overnight is that it was a vote against London as much as it was a vote against Brussels. And, I, you know, that might, there might have been some of that in, in South Wales as well. So that sentiment is there. Um, and it's negative in, 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 in some cases. But I think, and particularly among some younger professional people, you know, I look at my uh, daughter's generation, I, I detect this sort of sense of regional pride and a desire for instance, in career terms, a conscious desire not to go to London. Whereas, you know, when I, when I was uh, 18, you know, the first opportunity I got on the train and went to London to study, um, I think that's becoming less the case now. And there is a sense in which people want to stay and make their lives in London. That's partly because London's a difficult place to go and live and work. But it's also, I think, there is some kind of regional identity out there, which, as I say, hasn't been probably is difficult to politicise um, and turn into a movement, but is nevertheless there. And, you know, I, I think that sort of country, places like the North East, need to do something with that, because it's very positive in lots of ways. Very, it's full of energy, and um, 
you know, it's quite op- quite hopeful about the future of the place, um, and that needs to be bottled in some way, you know. But by that generation, not by people like me who, who had a go, you know, a generation ago, as it were, you know, it's still there. There's still something to be done, I think. With uh, the Brexit vote, there's been uh, certainly I've noticed this in Wales, where you've got politicians. Uh, like Carmen Jones, for example, the First Minister, talking about uh, the need to reconfigure the UK and to Mm. have a new deal, if you like, and there are people who write uh, essays, etc., constantly. I mean, there is a bit of a navel-gazing thing in Wales anyway, Mm. and there always has been. But I would say that since Brexit, that kind of constitutional navel-gazing, if anything, has increased. Um, And, of course... The problem, uh, from a federal point of view, is the size of England in relation to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And therefore, the issue comes in as to whether, if there were to be some kind of federal solution, it would be with England as a single entity, or whether it would be with England broken down into the regions, which was, I think, the original template, if you like, uh, 20 years Mm. ago. Mm. Um, How do you see that sort of argument panning out? Mm. I'd say there is a sort of, you know, there is evidence of a rising English nationalism. Um, and actually, you know, quite often it's most visible in those left-behind communities in the north of England. You know, in many ways they're the kind of English heartland. Rising, you know, in London you don't get that so much. Um, you know, I have this strange life where I work in London, but I live, I still live in the north of England. And so you're shuttling between these two places and increasingly thinking that, you know, is it all these part of the same country? The, the attitudes and dispositions of people in London seem so radically different from, to the ones that you would find perhaps in, in a place like Newcastle. In what way? Um, well, you know, London is a cosmopolitan city. It's at ease with its multi-ethnic nature. Um, it's dynamic in lots of ways, economically, culturally. It has many, many problems. And the most important of which is housing affordability, and that's driving people out uh, in complicated ways to different parts of the country. But in the north, the northeast of England is, um, by comparison, and you could say this about other places, with the possible exception of Newcastle itself at the centre, doesn't really have those attributes. You know, demographically, it's ageing, all kinds of social indicators, it's struggling. If you go outside of Newcastle into parts of, you know, southeast Northumberland or County Durham, you have, you know, multiple forms of uh, deprivation and so on. Um, I'm not saying those don't exist in London, but they exist alongside kind of economic dynamism, which isn't really present in these places. So there's a, a sense in which, you know, we have this English identity, but it's contained within a socially and economically polarised country. How you work all of that out is actually very, very difficult, you know, because some people say that English identity should be given an expression, and, you know, that's, I, I can see that, I'm as English as the next person. Um, you know, I don't go around painting a St. George cross on my forehead, but, you know, um, I'm, I'm at ease with English culture and literature and landscape and way of life. Uh, however, whatever political settlement you have, devolution settlement you have, you've got to accommodate these enormous differences that exist uh, within England, which are partly, you know, social and economic, but also about attitudes and um, outlook, I think. So in order to achieve any new 
configuration, what has to be done? You know, I still strongly support the principle of devolution. I think that without it addressing these social and economic problems and giving expression to this, what I see is this younger generation coming through who are very um, at home in the region don't and want to make their lives there. I think without devolution, without that kind of framework, it's going to be difficult to respond to those um, threats and opportunities, if you like. So devolution within England has to occur. How does it occur is the question. Um, under the Tories, under Osborne in particular, you had this push for metro mayors, and we've now got those in Manchester, uh, in, in Birmingham, and uh, Bristol, and most recently in Sheffield, and one or two other places. And what you have there is this uh, idea that you need a figurehead in these big cities to drive economic development. That's, that's the, the model. And it was, a, it was a very much, it was based on two things. One, George Osborne's personal preference for this particular model. Uh, and two, this argument that, um, uh, that Manchester, in particular, was a model for devolution. You have ten boroughs in Manchester who'd had this tradition of cooperating and uh, they created what they call a combined authority where they share some functions. And you have the figurehead of the directly elected mayor to oversee all of that. And Osborne's plan was to roll this model out among the big cities of, of, of England. But many of these big cities have turned their back on that model. Or where the model has been introduced, it's a kind of pale, slightly unsatisfactory, well, more than slightly, very unsatisfactory copy of what happened in, in, what's happened in Manchester. And there's also a kind of critique emerging of the Manchester model, perhaps not so much the current mayor, but the regime which preceded him, which uh, was all about glass and steel in the city centre, hotels, leisure, uh, flats, building of flats. You know, and, if, and, and I've done some research myself on this with colleagues at Manchester University to show that an enormous amount of flats have been built. Almost a new town is being built on the old industrial sites of Manchester. But that's done very little so far for the outlying areas. What's in, the, what's in this model for Rochdale or, or Bolton? So there's a model of devolution there which uh, George Osborne was very keen on and tried to roll out across England, but it's done so only in a partial and uneven way. Interestingly, though, the place to look at now is Yorkshire. What's happening there is quite interesting because the, there, the, the government's idea would have been you would have had two powerful city mayors in uh, the Leeds region, and in the Sheffield region. Well, they've got one in Sheffield now. But even the mayor there, Dan Jarvis, former Labour MP, has said what he wants is a devolution settlement for the whole of Yorkshire. Um, so this, in a sense, is taking us back to that 2004 model. And they talk about the one Yorkshire model there. And most of the local authority leaders have now signed up to this idea. And they're pressing the government to devolve powers to the Yorkshire level. And part of the argument there is that Simply creating a model of devolution based on these so-called fast-growing cities isn't enough to deal with the problems of the South Yorkshire coalfield, the Yorkshire uh, seaside towns, which are struggling. How does it help them to have a, a, a metro mayor, as they're called, in, in Leeds? Not clear. So this idea of one Yorkshire is emerging around those old regional boundaries that we were talking about 
earlier on. And I think there's a bit of a struggle taking place as to which of these ideas will, uh, will dominate. But it'll be ironic, of course, if um, Yorkshire becomes a devolved region because we'll have gone back to the model which was proposed by uh, Prescott back in, back in the early 2000s. And if that were to happen, do you think that that would act as a driving force for it to be spread to places like the North East and uh, elsewhere? I, I think it would put enormous pressure on the local politicians in places like the North East, you know, because you'd have to then say, well, look, you know, we're this, we're this set of fragments squeezed between the power of Scotland, Yorkshire and Manchester. So what are we, what are we, you know, how do we respond to that? Now, what's happened recently is um, three local authorities, uh, Newcastle, North Tyneside, and Northumberland, have agreed to set up one of these metro mayor arrangements. But it's a really, really unsatisfactory form of devolution. It doesn't even cover the urban region, and as a consequence, for instance, the mayor, this, the new, the proposed metro mayor won't have control over the, met- the, 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 um, the urban transport system because Gateshead and, and South Tyneside are not participating in this thing. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Um, and you're getting these problems bubbling up all over England where kind of half-baked, off-the-hoof solutions to really complicated questions... Um, are, are being proposed. Um, so going back to the question, a couple of questions ago, that you said, well, what, how, how will we manage this future? You know, increasingly, I think that in England we need some kind of constitutional convention where we try to sort out this mess, and we try to create, based on the widest possible consensus, the most stable governing arrangements that we can, uh, which give representation to those places which don't have it at the moment and don't just allow the big cities to run away with all the, the benefits. Do you think there's any appetite for that amongst the Conservatives? Well, in Yorkshire, the Conservatives are coming on behind this idea of the one Yorkshire idea. Um, I, I think, you know, within England, the political parties are so weak, so fractured, so lacking in moral conviction and authority it's difficult to see them leading this process. So the question then becomes, where does the leadership uh, come from? You know, I'm, I'm quite impressed from what I've seen so far with Andy Burnham as the Metro Mayor in, in Manchester. I think he's saying all the right stuff. He hasn't, as it turns out, got very much power to do much about the things that he thinks are important. One of the main things he's doing is asking for more powers. So the transport meltdown, which happened earlier in the year in in, in Manchester was absolutely unbelievable, shocking. You know, this is how. And he basically had to step forward and say to the population of Manchester, I agree, this is unacceptable, but I've got no power to sort it out. Um, and, and the Secretary of State for Transport, Chris Grayling, won't even go to Manchester to talk about it. It's nothing to do with me, he says. So, you know, we've got a real crisis of governance in England. I think it's linked to these widening social and economic inequalities. It's a country ill at ease with itself. Brexit adds an additional layer of complexity and urgency about finding solutions to these things. As the English people, we've got to to sort this out. Now, you've been down in Cardiff today uh, to talk about the foundational economy Mm. and regional aspects of that. Mm. 
could you just explain what that means? What is the foundational economy and how, right. um, how does having a regional perspective matter? Okay. Well, I think the, the foundational economy, I think, is a big idea that's coming in economic development policy. And a lot of the work on it has been done here in Wales, and that's partly why I've been here at this conference uh, talking about it and learning more about it. And there's a new book just about to be published um, on this. And what it's, I suppose, putting it in lay terms, you know, there's a great sort of, there's a huge amount of research and, and political philosophy and, and, and economic analysis behind it. But putting it simply, I would say it's, it's asking the question, the Manchester case I talked about earlier on, all this glass and steel going up, all this economic development, but local people feel that they're not getting their share out of it. I'm sure there's similar arguments being made in Cardiff, you know, as you get off the train at Cardiff, you see all these cranes and, you know, uh, office blocks going up, but you don't have to go very far from there to see that it's making no impact on, on the lives of, of many people. So for that reason, there's this suggestion that this economic model, econo- economic growth, the growth of GDP, which, you know, you hear about on the news and all that, is not translating into a better quality of life for the majority of people. So we need to rethink what this is all about. And what the foundational economy perspective says is that what's lacking in many communities are good quality infrastructures and services. And instead of um, focusing on glass and steel, let's focus on providing those. So, for instance, let's leave the UK behind for a second and look what's happening in the US at the moment. Amazon says they want to open a new headquarters. They've got their headquarters in Seattle. They want to open a new headquarters in another American city. And all the mayors and governors of the United States fall over themselves to give this huge, gargantuan tech giant with, with, with these enormous revenues, incentives to come and locate in their city. They, they offer them zoning privileges, you know, planning approvals. They offer them financial incentives. Why? Why? You know, and, and one or two American cities have, have said, look, actually, do you know what? You can go somewhere else. We can't afford you. We can't afford to have the benefits, the so-called benefits, that you say you're going to bring. Um, and uh, so this, this idea of the foundational economy would turn you back on that kind of wasteful bidding wars for investment and say, right, the priority in... Um, large parts of England is decent quality broadband provision. Why, you know, we, we shouldn't be handing out money to Amazon or any of these big companies which sort of hold to ransom the mayors and governors of, of the United States. What we should be doing is saying, working with, you know, really essentially asking local people, what are the priorities for you? What do you want? And what people want, it comes out of all the surveys, is they want decent education services for the kids. They want decent care for their elderly relatives. They want a health system that works. Why don't we, why don't we concentrate on those sorts of things um, instead of you know, trying to attract footloose, high-tech industries who, when they do arrive, provide questionable benefits? You know, in, in places like San Francisco, you know, local people are absolutely incensed by the tech industries and the way they run roughshod over the lives of, of, of everyday people. So that's what the foundational economy is about. It's about that debate. Who's the economy for? Who benefits from economic growth? Why should, 
we'd be bending over backwards to assuage the needs of these huge international companies which really don't care about the communities in which they're located. These are the issues we've been discussing, and what's the alternatives to that? The right wing is going to say you need to have wealth creators like Amazon to provide any degree of employment. Um, well, the problem, the problem you've got there is that um, the wealth creators are keeping all the wealth to themselves. They're not using it to create jobs. You know, well, they may be creating jobs, but these are precarious jobs. They're zero-hours contracts. They're jobs which don't allow people to make a living for their family. And what we're seeing is the, the richest groups in society accruing more and more of the wealth themselves. So you, you look at somewhere like London, where I work, and the amount of money that's stored up in land and housing, and yet there's a massive... The amount of wealth that's stored up in land and housing, and yet there's a massive problem of housing affordability. Um, this, this is unsustainable. Right? And I think even people on the right are starting to recognise that. So even George Osborne's Northern Powerhouse thing was a recognition, we've got to do something about this. I mean, it's a, it's a weak and probably already dying idea, but it was a recognition on the part of even right-wing politicians that just releasing the wealth creators is no good for society. You know, the wealth creators are not, you know, are not dealing with these social problems. On the contrary, they are hoarding the wealth that we need to, admit, to improve the lives of ordinary people. So how do you harness wealth for the public good? Well, we need to completely rethink our taxation system. What most of our taxation system is, is focused on taxing incomes. We need to tax wealth. The main store of wealth, or one of the main stores of wealth in this country, the primary store of wealth in this country now, is land and housing. So we need a land value tax. You can't just sit there on a piece of land, see its value increase, and make no contribution to society when it's society itself which has produced the conditions in which that, that the value of that land is appreciated. So land value tax. The second thing we've got to do is tax the enormous revenues of these tech giants which are irresponsible and uh, regressive in the way they, they behave and have no sense of their social obligations. Essentially what we need is to recreate the idea that business has obligations to society. You know, society does not serve the interests of business. Business has social obligations to society. You know, we all admire entrepreneurs and wealth creators, but not for keep all the benefits to themselves. It's as simple as that. John Tomney, thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Thank you.